Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Hello, listeners, subscribers. Brendan here with Mark as usual, Thursday, April the 20th. 2023 episode 289 mark 289 are you there mark we're closing in on the big three triple century three zero zero do we have anything special planned for that of course we do of course we do we just haven't written it down yet i had our little meeting about it but um it will be special it'll be big they're all special, but some are more special than others. And this one will be extra <laughs> special, Mark. Oh, I'll tell you what, the weather's pretty crappy down here, Mark. That's the official um, weather forecast, crappy. Um, it's autumn here in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, and it is crappy. Wet, crappy. cold, raining. Um, I know you've had a little bit of rain, but you're... You're a sort of a different type of rain, torrential and a, tropical it a, rain. It is a different type of rain, and um, we got a bit today. We had, um, I think, 140 millimetres of rain today. Um, so it does come down when it comes down. Um, but it, it, the temperature doesn't vary much here. It's still about 29 degrees at the moment. It sort of runs anywhere. It's lit, like living in a reptile enclosure. There's a range from 28 to 33, um, and it's always in that range. Ah, and you're always having trouble shedding. <laughs> you, yes. Well, yes, I'm hoping the weather will get better, but heading into winter, I'm not um, not holding my breath, Mark. I'm not holding my breath. Um, you do live in Melbourne too. Yeah. Everyone around the world should know that Melbourne, of all the Australian cities has a reputation for well the variable four, weather four seasons in one day yes but um I wouldn't live anywhere else Mark I still love it here <laughs> okay quick shout out to uh put a bit of housekeeping Mark vetgurus.com people to go to to look at our website look at the previous podcast don't forget to subscribe tell your friends Tell your enemies, maybe, Mark. <laughs> and thank you to our three main sponsors who have signed up for another year, Mark. That's fantastic, isn't it? So Specialised Animal Nutrition, Microchips Australia and Chemical Essentials. And a big shout-out to all the gangs at those three companies because um, they certainly keep us alive, the three of them, as far as um, the production because we, we do – Greatly appreciate their support with um, helping cover our costs. They're generous su supporters of our podcast and the whole exotic pet care industry in Australia. Those and I'll tell you what, Mark, I think I got an email. You may have seen it from Doug from Microchips. Uh, he, by the look of it, he'll be at the National Conference, the Australian Veterinary Association Conference in Adelaide. And I think you're a little, just a tad disappointed that you, you were trying to wing it, that you could be there. And um, I'll, 
I'll have a drink for you at happy hour with Doug for you. <laughs> uh, good on you, mate. <laughs> Tad disappointed is the understatement of the year. I was really disappointed. Um, anyway, these things happen. And, and I we think that, well, they'll probably all, all be there, the th- uh, those three main oh, sponsors of us. Ke- um, <laughs> Chemical Essentials and Andrew and his um, his support crew and also um, – also, um, Jen and um, Oxbow Australia. So, yes. Um, and it is disappointing because I, I love them all so dearly and just to miss out on having a drink with them. I will make up for it at the UPAV conference in November. Yes. Now, you've got an email you wanted to quickly mention, Mark, by one of our, our international correspondent. Oh, we, we're, we're almost going to have to put Nick on staff, I reckon, and I really value his perspective from the US and I I also value his interest in the animals that uh, you know we we overlap when we get to see them uh, Nick replies to a bit our discussion from a few weeks ago about uh, about bearded dragons and frill neck lizards uh, he does talk to us about the the um, the cost of those agamid lizards in America and they are a little bit more expensive than they are here in Australia by the numbers he tells us. It is ironic that he, just like here, the um, scale, the scale uh, abnormality um, morphs, the silks and the the um, the ones that have decreased scale uh, function, um, they do command a higher price. But Nick rather. Uh, um, cleverly identifies that they don't tolerate the amount of UV radiation needed to avoid developing metabolic bone disease. And so the poor silky animals waffle between one disease and another pretty much their whole life. Yeah, the, their health doesn't seem to be a major factor in either the US or here in Australia in whether they're valuable or not. It is amazing that uh, you can buy Australian water dragons in the US and and the fruit lizards, yeah, and um, and that they are pretty popular. But there aren't well, Nick reports that there aren't many reputable breeders of the water dragons or fruit lizards in his vicinity. And many of them are purchased as hatchlings from breeders in Florida, and um, and yeah, it's a it's an unfortunate thing that. Well, the problems we see here, Brendan, they seem to be worldwide, don't they? Yes, I'd be very interested of the in the provenance of those animals, Mark. Um, how they. How they got there, the original animals, whether they were legally um, acquired or, and shipped or flown across to the States, or whether they, um, like a lot of unfortunate um, species of reptiles and birds worldwide, that they were originally from a, you know, illegal um, smuggling of animals into the into the region. So, well, yeah. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure Nick will um, get back to us about that. <laughs> and I just about would guarantee you that. Um... Most of them are illegally yeah. um, transported. Initially, and, initially yeah. and now we've got many generations of being bred. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Thank you, Nick, um, again for your um, detailed email and um, keep up the good work. So, we love his correspondence, Brendan. 
Mark, I'm still waiting on a review for you. I keep saying that every week. Um, <laughs> so you need to provide one next week. I don't have anything on the cards at the minute, but I'll think of something um, for the coming weeks. Um, but I need a review I undertake, for you next week. I undertake to have one for you for sure. Good. So this week our main topic is really, well, it's just a, a series of articles and I think you suggested that we start reviewing a few journal articles and it's a great idea because we haven't, we've occasionally done a few journal articles and the the, um, the section we'll deal with is reptiles, Mark. So we've we've picked out three, three papers that are published at varying types of papers in, in different journals and I think we'll just rip through each of them. And I think it's an important, a couple of just general points, Mark, and that there is an increasing number of papers that you can manage to acquire without having to pay, you know, publishing rights or whatever, and or or, or you know, online. Um, and so, so, gee, I tell you what, Mark, I went to get a paper the other day, and it was something crazy like thirty dollars, you know, yeah, to, yeah. to get access to it. So, so, so are, I think that I think you're, and this is a separate issue, but I do think it's a good thing that we're moving towards. Um, uh, you know, articles being freely available. They, they, the publishing houses have had a pretty cushy situation where they can charge thirty or thirty-five dollars for a paper. Yes. Yeah, and I don't know. Look, the other thing, the other tip I've found is that if you email the authors, they generally have copies that they're happy to share as well. So you can usually gain those papers um, one way or another without without lining the pockets of the the, uh, uh, Funny you should say that, Mark. I've, I've had people email me for some of my papers and I think <laughs> and there's one that's probably eight years ago that, that um, I still haven't got back to them. So, um, so, so thanks, thanks for putting me in it there. <laughs> but um, I do try. Um, I'm very trying, Mark. Um, so let's jump into the first one. I think the first one we'll take, Mark, is probably not the one that you were thinking, but we're going to go with the colonic diverticulosis in a black pine snake. So a bit of a mouthful there. This was from ARAV, a very recent one, so the Journal of Herpetological Medicine and Surgery, uh, volume 33, number one, 2023, Mark. So a, a recent a recent paper by Abbott et al. So from, it looks like they're from the Colorado State, um, the main author was from, but a few of them were from, the other authors were from different um, different regions, Mark. And it's about a six-year-old captive bred male black pine snake. And I, yeah, this one was fascinating. Yes. It was presented for evaluation of a caudal salomic swelling. And as you and I know, um, lumps and bumps in snakes are a very common presentation and you know, my bottom line with them, with ninety nine percent of these, is we end up cutting them open and having a look, and and more often than not, it's something that's um, not compatible with life, <laughs> or we end yeah. up euthanizing them. But this one was a really fascinating one. So, so um, yeah, caudal slimic swelling that had been present for three days. Survey radiograph showed focal distension of the body wall and a mass of soft tissue. Um, and a mineral opacity mark, and they proceeded to then do an ultrasound, um, seeing changes that they thought were consistent with an intersusception, and they jumped in and did a ciliotomy mark. So do you want to take the next little bit for this one and just 
walk our listeners through the ciliotomy? Or if not, I'm on. No, you keep going because I'm. I was uh, just having a look further down the paper. So yeah, so so they did the ciliotomy, and um, yeah, it was, and they got some great picks in it. And this is a really well. I, I like this paper, really well written paper, and well summarised, and the discussion's very good as well. And they found basically an intestinal diverticular mark and complete absence of smooth muscle layers on the histopath and uh, a non-perforating rupture of the bowel wall. And funnily enough, the snake survived. <laughs> I probably wouldn't if it was me. Um, recovered uneventfully and began 18 five days after surgery and eight months later. So the other excellent part about this one is, is that we have a follow-up of this um, animal. Um, physical and ultrasound exam eight months later, uh, body condition improved. There's no recurrence of clinical signs and it remained normal at the last checkup 30 months post-surgery mark. So, yeah, do you want to have a little chat about the surgery, maybe the discussion that they they got a very long discussion here. Um, so maybe we'll try and, and summarise and that. There was, well, there's a couple of general points. I really enjoyed the the practical detail of this case study that's one of the things about the Arab journal that i really enjoy that um uh, there's a lot of detail that's immediately practically um useful and so um uh, the details of the 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 surgery the equipment that's used the diagnostic process is just like abundantly clear so it's an excellent paper in that regard the the I'm interested in, you know, a captive bred animal that develops a, a diverticulosis, and that's a relatively rare occurrence, um, and so it's excellent that they could diagnose it. It's excellent that being able to diagnose it, they could then uh, surgically correct it at the time of um, the ciliotomy. And, yeah, I think it's... Um, uh, it does point to, and often the papers in Arab's journal do point to, like pushing back the limits of our knowledge. It's not, they're not uh, recapping things that have been done over and over again. This sort of makes us think of a, a potentially new cause for those masses that we see in snakes and suggests to us that we, um, you know, whack the ultrasound on and look for the potential um, that it could be a, a diverticulum. Do you think that it's been a developmental problem, Brendan? That's a good theory, Mark, a very good theory there. I, I think they did mention that it, I mean, it mentioned three days previously, but there was some comment, I'm trying to find it, about potential chronic issues with faecal production. I don't know whether you can find that in the paper there, but... Yeah, and if that's the case, if it had been going on for a while, yeah, because I think this is the first case report of a um, naturally occurring, occurring colonic diverticulosis in in a in a snake. I think, um, yeah, I've, I've got it. Just going back a couple of steps, any other a couple of very detailed with their report on you know. On, on the whole process and, and drug use, et cetera, and um, antibiotic um, use, the ultrasound pictures, et cetera. Um, interestingly enough, Mark, the, the um, induction for the anesthesia, their pre-med was butorphanol 
and alfaxalone um, as a pre-med um, because the alfaxalone was given 20 milligrams per kilogram intramuscular and then induced using sevaflurane. Um, uh, so there's always lots of different um, protocols there. My, my preference by far is always going intravenous for the ventral caudal tail vein, um, probably 8 to 10 mg per kg um, if we're going that way. Um, but um, I think that's not an uncommon method, um, especially in the States with intramuscular induction or um, pre-medication pre or sedation um, with reptiles there, Mark. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, the the, um, the discussion on this one goes over, you know, three very detailed um, pages there, Mark, um, including the one of the interesting. On, yeah. So we go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say one of the interesting things in the discussion was the suitability of of the uh, opioids that um, yes. butorphanol, um, uh, um and, and the difference between the colubrid snakes and the the elapids and the boidae, the pythons and boas, um, that that we we don't have firm and it's it's this area is rapidly evolving with each of those species within each of those uh, family groups, and so yeah, they they there is a bit of a discussion about which one might be most appropriate which one does have the runs on the board um, and uh, moving away from mu agonists and into the, the kappa mu agonist antagonist uh, is, is yeah, a pretty reasonable course of events. But um, it's good that they discuss those things and reflect on them, Brendan. Yep. And they also talk about um, why they went with the different modalities for the workup as well. And a little little discussion on saying, yeah, you know, if if you've got one, everybody throws the animal in the CT scanner these days, don't they? Not that we've got one. And saying that CT scanning is inferior to ultrasound for identification of wall layering. Um, so that's what one of the reasons why they didn't um, consider a CT scan in this way, and the ultrasound um, provided the info they needed. So um, and a little discussion on the on the blood results as well, Mark. So very, very interesting case. So that's our first one, Mark, colonic diverticulaceous in a black pine snake from ARAV. And, yeah, there are, that's um, and that was in the little group they call In My Experience, um, and they're typically case reports like this. And, uh, yeah, I think they're very, very clinically appropriate, but this one was excellent as far as it's the discussion um, of the... Um, of the problem that they had in this snake, Mark. Um, so the What's next, the next paper? Next one we will do, well, the next one's a big one that you wanted to throw in there, but it's husbandry diseases and veterinary care of the bearded dragon, Mark. It was a review by Paul Ratey in the, I think, ARAV again, or the or the Journal of Herpetological Medicine and Surgery again. But this one was way, it's, um, well, 13 years ago now. This is volume 22, 2012, Mark. Um, so, yeah, do you want to rip into this one, your thoughts on this one? Well, I, I did. First of all, I approached this article the first time I read it a long time ago. Um, I approached it with a bit of trepidation because I was worried that, you know, the perspective from uh, the US might be different to what we see here in Australia. Yes, 
but it didn't prove that way. It proved just as we were talking about with uh, Nicholas, the the problems we see at least um, with bearded dragons seem to be pretty universal. So um, it's pretty cool to see the array of diseases and um, and the potential problems, um, you know, be immediately appropriate to discuss with um, with the the reptiles we see in Australia. I was a little bit worried uh, because of the small founder stock effect that uh, the original inlanded, inland bearded dragons, the uh, Pagona viticeps, were uh, allegedly imported to America from Germany where they were legally imported. Yep. And I thought that may, you know, that we often find in species where there's isolated populations arising from small founder stock in the pet trade, they have unique problems. Uh, but I think that illegal trade that's cross-fertilised and outcrossed the animals means that um, that there seems to be a lot of parallels um, and a lot of the diseases, uh, you know, particularly talking about um, the aneurysms that we get to see here and they see um, similarly in the US. So I commend this article as a, an excellent general summary of the, um, of the things that you should look out for in uh, in bearded dragons, the health issues in bearded dragons, yes. and and, it, and even though it is yeah thirteen years held um, up since well. it was published, most definitely because it has a very good summary of the common condition seen. And I think I was just flicking through them as you were speaking, Mark, and I think most of them still apply as to what they've mentioned there um, and the percentage of of those problems that we see it also has some basic um, biochemistry and hematology yeah, yeah. reference ranges um, talks a little bit about the husbandry physical examination um, a little blurb on um, highlights of nutrition with them and reproduction yeah i mean i'm just looking at and i just poked around in a bit more detail on a couple of the conditions including one that i've seen a few cases of the squamous cell carcinomas mark around the yep. eye of the um beardies and you know really well um well written and researched i think so a, a great summit and, and and i know that a lot of people have used this particular article as their go-to reference if they didn't have a textbook um, or a general reptile textbook they'd have this yeah. particular article it quick we're seeing a beta dragon pull out the husbandry diseases and veterinary care beta dragon paper <laughs> yeah. and um, we'll jump That's into good it reason. yeah so, yes the only the only area that um it, it talks about uh, some of those viral diseases, but there's been so many advances in those over the last um, uh, 12 or 13 years that um, that's probably the only area that needs updating. My highlight, though, in this article is um, uh, um, firefly ingest, fly, firefly toxicosis, um, that, um, that particularly in the, uh, the US where um, fireflies might be a little bit more common than they are here, um, and, uh, and 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 they're obviously dangerous to um, bearded or to any animal that eats them, but particularly bearded dragons because of their innate desire to have a nip at anything that's bright and moving. Yes, and one of the reasons why a lot of 
clients here are fearful of feeding any wild-caught insects because they see reports all over the internet about um, don't feed wild-caught insects to bearded dragons because they'll kill them. And often it goes back to the fact that, yeah, if you are in a region like the States where you, they might eat a firefly and die, then it's probably best to play safe and tell clients not to feed any wild-caught insects. And I tell them the exact opposite if they're here. Mm-hmm. I tell them to feed them everything, um, that they, anything and everything they can get out there in the wild um, for them. We have so the advantage, Brendan, that our wild is where the lizards come from. So it's most yeah. likely they're going to be eating the stuff they would anyway. Yes, otherwise they'd be extinct, wouldn't they? Uh, <laughs> yes. So the third and last one, Mark. Repair of a comminuted femoral or femur fracture. Well, I'll read it as the way they've written it. Repair of a comminuted femur fracture in a Komodo dragon using a double plating technique. This is another article from ARAV Mark Journal of Herpetological Medicine and Surgery in my experience. And again, was volume 33, number one, 2023 this year, Mark. And Another good one. We picked a, 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 um, three good ones, oh, haven't we? Um, so this one it describes a double locking compress, compression plate fixation of a comminuted right femoral fracture in a Komodo dragon mark. And, yeah, it was a decent comminuted fracture on that, that oh, radiograph crikey. there. And if I saw that, I'd be thinking, oh, God, um, can I – bump it onto an orthopod uh, to say, oh, do I have to really deal with this one? And uh, the abstract saying the dragon did not use the pelvic limb to walk. Well, I'm not surprised, Mark, considering um, what was happening there. So they, uh, what did they do? They put these compression plates, two locking compression plates were applied in a bridging fashion for fracture repair and radiographs performed at the four-month post-op check revealed a healed fracture with a, a big callus but stable implants there and it was transitioned from cage rest to restrictive space and eventually no lameness was observed and normal limb function was noted. And again, this one was followed up, Mark, and after three years, still ambulating normally and without lameness. And the first report of a successful femoral fracture stabilisation using bone plate fin- fixation in a Komodo dragon. <laughs> That's the and advantage the... of dealing with unusual pets, isn't it? Because you're, you're, <laughs> you're always treating a specific problem in a, in a species um, and, and you'll more often not be able to say, look, I was the first one to do this particular. I was the first one to euthanize this species. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Crikey, it would be difficult to, like, this is an uh, eight kilo varanid and and so that's a plus in at least it's you know a lot of our reptile patients are so small that you couldn't contemplate um, this sort of surgery but this is an animal of a particular size but they are also very very muscular animals and um and uh, keeping it restrained during the recovery process would have been absolutely critical to getting this to heal but geez i'd be i'd be Crikey's, I'd hang my career on that repair if if I ever had a surgery that went as well as that. That looks awesome. It does. And interestingly enough, the anesthesia for this one, Mark, did you see? The, it was induced in a chamber with isoflurane. That's what the anesthetic technique for this one, so, which is quite interesting. Um, so it would have been in a lot of isoflurane. Fascinating <laughs> to see how long that took as well, yeah. Um, so... 
There we go. And yes, they they um, go into great details about the uh, about um, natural surgery, including a very descriptive description of and the bringing the two bone segments um, together using um, bone holding forceps and uh, the plates and using. 2.4 millimeter lock-in screws um, in, in the segments and some pre um, pre and post-op um, radiographs there um, and then yeah gee, I tell you what it was a they weren't exaggerating when they talk about there was a significant callus formation um, on those two months and the four months post-op what do you think of those Mark well it it is it's a huge amount of callus formation but geez you'd be over the moon to palpate the leg and feel it stable um, and see all that that remodeling bone that that just um you you as a surgeon you couldn't hope for anything better and it, it's interesting from from the radiographs it does look like the callus has incorporated the um at least one of the the compression plates um and so that that uh, probably renders it unable to ever be removed so yeah they meant they did mention that all the comminutive fragments were incorporated in the callus and uh lots of remodeling going on there and and they they did make the comment that typically some implants require removal um when fractures healed there but they viewed it as unlikely to be um helpful um, for the patient so they left the left the implants in there so um yeah excellent and uh again very very great practical um description of it um and great follow-up case um you know these are the ones as 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 a clinician I, i love these sort of um papers mark because they're exactly what you need they go through everything from the you know the diagnosis to the workup to the to the treatment the recovery and the and the follow-up the follow-up's invaluable isn't it that's the the you you feel much more comfortable suggesting to clients that um we go down this path when there's um you know when it's not a hail mary where there's evidence that this is uh has worked previously and and you've got such a guide to the detail of how it got there Yep, and you know there is a there is a tendency not to accept papers uh, for that have an individual case report, Mark, um, generally for journals, and um, I certainly realise that being one of the associate editors for the Australian Veterinary Journal. But if you're presented with a a manuscript like these ones, you're, you're more than likely to consider publishing it because it does have very good, if not great, value. Yeah. Well, it's, so, it's critical too because um, there's not, you know, of course we want the evidence higher up the hierarchy. We want um, those double-blinded studies or a case series. But that with our uh, reptile and other exotic species, there just often isn't the caseload to provide you with those higher-order evidence um, uh, clades. So it's much, you know, it's wonderful that while it's a uh, anecdotal case study, it's um, it's the best evidence we can have, and um, these sorts of articles that are written in such detail um, at least give us that great starting guidance. Yep, I agree. And if any of our listeners have any papers that they've read recently 
or previously that they think we should discuss, fire an email to us, vetgurus at gmail.com, and we'll have a look at them and more than likely consider having a chat about them in our next little journal club, Mark. We should have called this one journal club. I think we'll call that mm-hmm. next time our journal club. And I think with that, Mark, um, we've been babbling on enough, but um, I thoroughly enjoyed those little discussions of those three um, papers there, Mark. And you may have realised that I didn't um, read them fully before we started, <laughs> but uh, I was reading um, a lot of it as we went, but it was fresh. It was it was live, Mark. Um, we we, we um, did the podcast live. So I think with that, we'll get out of here and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.